Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is the musician, Andrew Bailey. Not only will we be in conversation, but Andrew will also perform a few of his songs for us live in the studio. Andrew Bailey is an American songwriter, singer, and guitarist. His intricate songs are crafted with raw emotion, fierce guitar work, and an unmistakable soaring voice. After extensive touring across the US and Europe with the legendary gospel and funk organist Corey Henry, Bailey relocated from the East Coast and returned home to Omaha, Nebraska. Bailey has also worked with platinum recording artists Aloe Black, Ms. Lauren Hill, Mono Neon, Gil Goldstein, members of Snarky Poppy, and more, and has shared the stage with George Clinton, Marcus Miller, Talib Kweli, Layla Hathaway, Russell Malone, and many others. Drawing elements from a variety of musical styles and traditions, Bailey's songs are woven from his own hopes, fears, and enchantment, tapping into the common human experiences that give us pause, inspire longing, or set us ablaze. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stuart. Good to be here. Uh, do you still yearn to play hockey? You know, um, sports was a big part of my life when I was growing up. Uh, in fact, uh, although I did, I was that little baby playing piano, uh, like we had a piano at my house. So I was a little kid just making stuff up and, and exercising those kind of creative muscles. I was really more into sports. And along with uh, playing hockey, we also had a basketball hoop in my backyard. And it's kind of interesting, in the last couple years, uh, since I moved back to Omaha, I figured I needed to do something uh, about my physical shape or lack thereof. So I, uh, I started going to the gym, and that was really the thing that sparked it again was playing basketball. Although I don't play hockey anymore, I haven't skated in a few years, I think that passion, it definitely transferred to music kind of when I was, you know, 13, 14. But I feel like some of that is now being tapped into and when I play basketball I just play like pickup games and and uh, have fun and try to try to work on my sad shot <laughs> <laughs> this is maybe stretching this metaphor but how is hockey like being a musician I think again I don't think specifically hockey has anything to do with with necessarily being a musician but you can on some level draw um, a comparison between you know, really high-level, world-class musicians and, um, you know, world-class uh, uh, professional sports uh, uh, figures and players. Like, you, you know, there's a saying, right, amateurs practice until they get it right, professionals practice until they can't get it wrong. And that, I feel like that really embodies a lot of the things. Like, it, that has really nothing to do with being creative. But if you work on, you know, sharpening those tools and um, and just like the mechanics of everything, like you can combine that with a, a, a creative mindset, and you know, all of a sudden these these things that seem really incredible and difficult to you know your average person become normal. And I, I'm not saying I'm in that class at all. I'm just saying like if you look at um, kind of what it takes to become 
great at really anything. And you can, you can lump uh, really any profession in with that. You put those hours in on the right stuff, you can be great at something. And it's, that's there for anybody. Uh, I'm not a special case at all. Listeners will be able to assess this for themselves, but I've been listening to your music and I'm already assured of my own answer. But to your earlier aphorism about practice and perfection, do you feel like you've practiced enough so that you now can no longer get it wrong? Not at all. Uh, because there is no, like, uh, there's not, it's not about enough. It's not about you've done enough. It's, it's, um, it's more about, like, what have you done lately, you know? This is absolutely not to say that, like, if you don't practice a huge amount of hours that you can't be a great artist. There are plenty of people that have an amazing creative output and don't care at all to think of it in, in terms of kind of where we're going with this conversation. And I want to say that, like, although I have, I have put in a lot of practice over the course of my life, and I do feel that that's important, it's also there's an element of like one of the wisest people I ever know I ever knew actually used to say learn the song forget the song play the song like there's an element of like okay all of this stuff over here that I've been working on let me then just like forget about it and play as if I don't know any of that you know it's still backing me up but it's like we don't have to worry about what anything really is you know, we can just communicate and speak just like we're not going to think about language is a good analogy because we're not going to think about specifically what every word means. We start to get in that headspace and everything becomes really strange and we can't really communicate. You know, it's the same thing with music. It's like um, no matter who we're playing with, we can communicate on a certain level and, you know, whatever comes out at that moment is a representation of everything that's led up to that moment. So we just have to as a musician um, that strives to be, make a certain type of creative expression, I just always want to be ready for that next opportunity, whether it's me playing uh, my original music solo or with a, a group of musicians that I've put together, um, or if I'm backing somebody else up, you know, or we're just having fun and jamming. I want to be comfortable in that language. It helps to humble ourselves before before our passion because then we can really realize that we're more like antennas than like okay we've i've created this thing like uh, i sat down with my friend ali peeler yesterday and um uh started started playing something that i that i like that's not written yet it happens to be what i was playing out in the hallway i kind of like it kind of reminds me of like something maybe james blake would kind of chord progression that he would play i don't feel like i created that at all you know, that's something that just kind of came through. Um, you know, Tom Waits has this idea that all of his songs are, uh, you know, they're already done. It's just his job to bring them into the world, you know. And if something's not working, then it's just not, not that time, you know. And then sometimes you get lightning in the bottle. At the beginning, it might have seemed a, a little weird to talk about this yearning for hockey, but it's because it was an important part of your childhood before you then emerged into music. Would you maybe just share a little bit about your childhood and how you experienced childhood, what your childhood was like, where it was, and, and then how you sort of moved through your teenage years and, and found music. Well, um, first off, I was very fortunate to be born with, with the mother that I had. Uh, she was a single mom for 
about nine, ten years, and uh, or about nine years. And uh, she met my my stepdad, who's the person who raised me from then on. It was his name that was Bailey. My name before that was something different. Um, I'm really lucky that I didn't get my biological father's name because that would have been Noondorfer, and I, I'm, I would have to change that. <laughs> but um, no, my mom is great. Uh, her name is Patty, and uh, she's an incredibly strong woman. Bought a house in Cleveland Heights, Ohio when I was uh, about two years old. And uh, not to get too sidetracked on it, but, uh, it, you know, my grandfather, her father, was um, uh, was able to buy a house in the 1950s. And they were uh, a generation before that. Actually, my grandmother was a Jewish Im- immigrant from Poland. And uh, my grandfather was, was one generation removed from that. They met in Brooklyn and then uh, ended up moving to Cleveland. And there were a lot of policies at the time um, about... Called, they used to call redlining, right? You know, um, my grandparents and their family, they were the only Jewish family in the subdivision called Sheffield Lake near Cleveland. It, it's just crazy thinking about this, and I, I don't take it for granted. I recognize that my childhood and the house that I grew up in in Cleveland Heights was literally built with the equity that were afforded my grandparents because even though they came from a class of people that were, you know, uh, discriminated against, they were the right color to get that mortgage. And that's why I had a happy childhood um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and that, that kind of just resonates with me a little bit. Uh, and I can't really take that for granted. Um, yeah, my, my childhood was, was cool. Um, I started skating at the age of two. My mom was really into that for some reason. Started playing hockey, really got into that. I had some cousins that were playing. And, um, you know, that was my life until I was 12. And we moved to Omaha and um, kind of an awkward time to move in eighth grade, but uh, went to went to Bellevue East in high school. Um, and uh, I had some, there were some really good people there that helped shape me. Mrs. Simons Bester, uh, a doctor, Dr. B now. She's amazing uh, choir teachers where I started singing when I was in 10th grade. Um, I had a, a janitor named Buddy, that um, custodian, who I was kind of friends with, and he was a guitar player too, and he was just like, yo, if you're, if you're um, playing guitar, you really have to go and sing because it's kind of worthless you know, uh, if if you don't sing, and so I hadn't even really found a voice yet, and and so through through those folks, and just for the record, my mom was also telling me to do that, but I didn't want to listen to her at that point. So it was definitely uh, I definitely don't have any complaints. Definitely definitely didn't have a rough childhood. I don't know really what else you <laughs> you want to hear about my childhood, um, but uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, Moved out when I was 17, graduated when I was 17, and uh, my folks moved to Milwaukee, uh, and I stayed in Omaha here, uh, and was was going to go to Berkeley School of Music, uh, but I decided to take a year off. I just formed a band uh, with some cats. We were calling it the Jazz Holes, and uh, that year turned into about 10 years. <laughs> then, and then I went to uh, to New York at that point, but uh, I don't really have any bad memories. And I feel like that's probably rare. So I count my blessings. I'd like to ask you to play something. Sure. But before you do that, do you have one particular memory 
of you and your guitar that stands out for you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, so I got my first guitar on May 1st, 1999, after begging my parents. Um, and I remember that day specifically. And uh, I was like into grunge and rock and stuff at that point. You know, uh, just anything that sounded like rock was cool for me. And uh, I remember getting my guitar and thinking that I would just be able to make the sounds that I was hearing. And of course I couldn't. And I learned later on that like, I was trying to play what they call a power chord, you know, which is like two notes together. If you know about music, it's a, they're a fifth apart, perfect fifth. And that makes a power chord. And that's used in a lot of rock, rock songs and other, other songs, but uh, specifically rock. And just that feeling of like, oh man, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, the first time I tried to play it and just try to mess around. And I just remember feeling like, okay, well, it's okay. I guess I, I'll have, I'll figure it out, you know, whatever I need to do. But that was just a humbling experience. Like, oh man, there's this thing I, I really want to be able to do. And I, oh, I just can't do it right away. I might have to, might have to check out what, what I really need to do there. You know, I don't know. I felt like it was kind of the transition of like, going from a kid just doing anything that was easy to like maybe growing up a little bit, like being like, well, all right, here's this thing that I really want to do. So I got to figure out how to do this, you know, and I had lessons and stuff. So it wasn't like I was totally on my own with it. Um, but that was kind of the start of that journey. So is it okay now? Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's do Please. it. Let's do it. Um, I just released a record. Uh, uh, it's called Wasteland. You can check it out on uh, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, any other uh, uh, streaming outlets. You can come to a show and get a CD at some point if you would like. Um, and you can also get all of that stuff at andrewbaileymusic.com. Uh, the song I'm going to play for you first is actually not on the record. This is a song that um, I'd like to share with you. I've had this song for a number of years. I actually wrote this uh, maybe 2013. We were still kind of at war and all this stuff. And, and um, this has gone through, well, we're still at war, I guess, with everybody. But this, is, this has gone through a number of transitions. Uh, and, and I titled this song Jim. And Jim represents kind of everything that's wrong and broken with our uh, system of, I guess, politics, if you want to call it that, but uh, really it's human rights, I suppose. Jim makes millions Selling soil Drank blood from the river Tasted with oil Cause he ain't got no shame Jim was real tough Crawling man. Now you could see him 
on the steps in Washington. Jim started war with the stroke of his pen. Cronus line up their pockets now. Again, again, and again. Cause they ain't got no shame. 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 Jim turned his back on his family, everyone except for his wife. Even she knows she's in his prison And she knows she's sitting for life Cause they ain't got no shame gap year into a decade of experiences more or less more or less i wouldn't trade them for anything though what characterized those 10 years for you what what were you getting up to well i mean uh, it was just really cool to be able to get a regular gig you know it felt really good when i was uh, 17 uh 18 19 you know uh pretty much Jazz Holes was super creative, and um, we, we collaborated a lot on music. I wrote some music. Um, 
uh, we, we met a lot of people doing that. And holding that regular gig, that was a big part of life for the first few years after um, after high school. And, you know, always at that age, it kind of feels bigger than it than it is, you know. Um, but that was before, like, Facebook and, and all of the social stuff. There was really a big word-of-mouth thing that kind of got around and made a lot of friends through that and uh, partied a lot, had a lot of fun, um, didn't get in too much trouble, but a little trouble. Uh, and kind of as as that was kind of transitioning away from an every week kind of gig I met this dude named Dana Murray uh, and Dana is an amazing drummer and musician and producer he's actually um, uh, got some wait for this to drop I mean he did he did his record uh, uh, last year uh, entitled Negro Manifesto but the next one that's coming out, uh, and, and you should definitely check that out. It's it's a heavy listen. It's a great listen. It's making a statement. Um, it's geared towards like jazz and avant-garde, and there's a little bit kind of more textures and styles on it, and it's it's amazing. Um, but the things he's doing now is kind of like his new stuff is is more geared towards like funk and like really songwriting that you would kind of hear more from uh, I don't want to say a pop artist but um, it's kind of headed a little bit more in that direction so that's gonna be amazing but when we first met Dana he had just got back from New York and he had those like New York chops to his playing and 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 just his everything about him we had never heard anything like that we we saw him at uh, what's now the Sydney in Benson but was mix at that point um, our drummer, Matt Arbeiter, uh, went up to him and straight away, just first thing he said, I don't know who you are, but I have to study with you. And so uh, Matt started getting serious. And, and he was, you know, I was the front man of the jazz holes, but Matt was kind of the de facto leader because he was kind of the most driven and, and really wanted to work hard at music and get better. So Matt met Dana and started getting really serious. And that took a while, but started to rub off on the rest of us, too. And uh, so I went and studied with Dana. And, you know, he he was really instrumental in just like motivating me to try to do a lot better and just just making me realize like, okay, this thing you think you're taking seriously and you're devoting all your time to, you're really not doing that. So this is what you need to do to become a serious cat. And uh, uh, we spent years uh, working on, uh, he spent years working with me, you know, um, and was one of the main catalysts um, uh, to like not settle for mediocrity and try to really strive for greatness. And so he was one of the main people in my life that really encouraged me to move to New York. Um, and and so I, I don't think I would have done that if, if I hadn't met Dana. What was that transition in your mindset and your behavior, your practice between being someone that thought you were taking music seriously and performing and so on and so forth, and then taking that to another level that meant you were touring America and Europe and so on? Well, I mean, there was a lot in between that, but but just just getting serious to the point where it was conceivable that I would move to New York and be and not just not just have some uh, you know job or whatever doing what I have to survive. Like anybody can live anywhere, and that's and that's that's cool. But like like to go there and be a musician and only do that, you know, um, uh, it was. I think kind of like maybe the last step out of adolescence, like like kind of looking looking in the mirror, and uh, it took somebody to just like put that mirror right in front of me. He didn't have all the answers. Was the other thing, you know? So so I feel like my my education and it was was much different than it than it would have been had I gone to a music college 
where it's like, okay, do this and then do this and then do this and then do this and we do this and, and all of this stuff. Um, and, and that can lead to uh, amazing musicians. I'm not knocking any sort of music college, um, but one has to put the time in themselves. It's not just because you went to a music college, you're going to be great. Um, it's just for me going and studying with Dana and he would sometimes be like, you know what? I've played with some of these ridiculous cats, like some of the baddest guitar players in the world. And your stuff doesn't sound like that. I don't know how to play your instrument, but I know that you have YouTube and we were slowing down tapes back in the day. So go get that, you know, and, and, uh, that was, and, and also, you know, if you're not putting in, you know, five, six hours a day, just on individual practice, like then that's, then, then you're not doing enough, you know? So existing in that environment kind of helped me to uh, make that transition of where just even thinking about moving to New York was possible. And then it helped me because a lot of the guys from the Jazz Holes moved to New York uh, around the same time. Um, Matt, a couple years before me, Nick Simrad, who's a monster in on the scene right now, um, he's in L.A. at this point, but he's everywhere. Uh, these guys moved there before me, and, and it was really valuable to have that support structure of like people there helping you out, helping you make connections. And, um, uh, I got a lot of gigs through my guys that, that were there. Um, and then the whole process starts over. It's like, okay, in Omaha, it's like, all right, I'm existing with doing, putting this much work in and being serious and like writing and all of this stuff. And, and then you get to New York and it's like, okay, I just want to be able to gig and exist. You know, and then you realize because you don't have time to practice in New York a lot of times, you know, life is it takes so much longer to do anything. Like I drove from my house to, to where we are now in like 15 minutes. And that seems like a long trip if you talk to anybody in Omaha. But it's like and I used to give myself 90 minutes to get from a spot in Brooklyn to another spot in Brooklyn because that's just what it was. So, you know, you combine that with like you're not ever going to have a laundry unit usually in your building you know it's just forget in your apartment just probably not going to happen so life just gets planned out a lot differently and you know you still have to know those 30 songs for the next gig that they gave you two days ago you know and there's no rehearsal for so it's just getting to that level where i could exist on that level um and then after that it was no longer about like Oh, can you play or can anybody play? It's just like, how good's the hang? You know, who do you know and what's the hang like? You know, and um, the rest you just piece together, I suppose. How did you then from, from that point make this leap then, you said, into being perhaps a more sought-after artist? The main gig that I had for a while was uh, Corey Henry and the Funk Apostles. And Corey Henry is the organist from Snarky Puppy, um, amazing, amazing, uh, uh, organist, uh, keyboard player. Um, he's legendary at this point in my mind. That connection came through Nick Simrad, uh, and having come up with Nick, Nick was in the jazz holes. Um, and he, he is really good at putting himself in, in situations and also just really killing the gig every time. Like you're not going to talk to anybody that, has played with Nick that 
to say that like he he didn't he didn't bring everything in a unique way that is his own personal thing. Like he gets hired because he's Nick Simrad, you know, at this point. We knew uh, he knew uh, and was playing with a, a gospel singer uh, and bassist named Jay White, who's uh, amazing. He's in Nashville now, but he was in Brooklyn at the time. And uh, Jay needed a guitar player. And, uh, you know, because of Nick's word, hit me up. And, and uh, so we started playing together. And there were a lot of gigs where it was just like no drummer. Um, but but that, that vibe was still there. That groove was still there. And um, then when Corey got back in town, uh, uh, Corey started playing on those gigs because Corey and Jay were basically brothers from, from young age, um, raised together. And... Um, I just happen to be at the right place at the right time. I mean, that's what most of life is, I suppose. You know, it's just like you're you're in the right place at the right time. You get along with everybody and you're a good hang. And then, um, and also, yeah, you can play and you got your own thing. So um, that was the biggest lesson. I mean, I joke around and I say I was the worst musician in the room for three years, but I, that's really not a joke. <laughs> Those cats are monsters. And um, I learned so much just being around that, just because... There was not really any time we would ever really talk about the music in terms of like with theory or with these other things that like people think like, okay, we're going to play this chord and then this chord. It's not like that. You know, it's like at least with this group of people, it was like we're going to just be in that that moment, that flow state. I hear something and we're all going to vibe together. For me, it was like I had to learn like how what is my role and how do I do that the best of my ability? Uh, and also I learned that it was okay to sound like me, you know, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't about like what somebody else had necessarily done or what somebody else could play. You know, um, it was just like, I was in that project at that time because I had a certain sound that, that, uh, Corey liked. I might not be the best guitar player on the planet, but there's nobody else that sounds exactly like me. And that's true for anybody, you know. Uh, but once you embrace that, I think it helps, um, you know, it helps you come through in any situation. That might be a great segue into Wasteland. Okay. Because yeah, you're talking about, in some ways, this transition to recognizing that you have a particular voice, style, sound, something that is uniquely you, and it's okay to be you as a musician. One of the thoughts I had about Wasteland was, why is this your first album, you know? <laughs> and so I want to explore Wasteland a little bit with sure. you. One aspect of it, and we talked about this a while ago, is this massive arc of musical style and narrative. It feels like it's a full-on five-course experience as opposed to a fast food snack. I like that. I like that. I might use that. <laughs> five course meal <laughs> so we we talked before about like the intentionality where you demand some patience and attention of your listener because the first song on the album mr sunshine is over seven minutes mm -hmm. and how many albums now construct themselves around an opening song which demands that well, and, and I uh, I released that as a single too. So so that was that was the first single, um, uh, and and it was uh, uh, seven minutes long. And honestly, um, I mean, I feel like in some ways, 
you know, obviously, I think I think if if, if somebody likes my music, I, I love it, and, and I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from the record so far. Um, but also at the same time, it's not really my job to. I don't feel like it's my job to necessarily hold anybody's hand. You know, if you get bored um, uh, uh, and you don't want to come with me, then that's fine. You know, uh, that doesn't hurt me at all. Um, but I think, yeah, for people that enjoy that patient approach, you know, uh, and it's not all super patient, but yeah, you're right. Mr. Sunshine is a patient song. Um, it's for, uh, my cousin, uh, Lowell Ensel, uh, as he rests in peace. But, uh, I felt like that one especially couldn't just be a little blip of a song. You know, it was like that, that song is more about the energy that's created uh, from those sounds, you know, than it is, than it is um, the structure and 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 the lyrics and the, and it's it's just everything together kind of had to be that way, I guess. Uh, we just had to live there for a while before we could move on. Well, before I ask some more questions in about the album, yeah, maybe now's a good time to pause quickly and sure. ask if you'd consider playing something yeah. else. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Thanks. <laughs> All right, I think we're close. Um, so I'm gonna play a song now. I'm gonna play one from the record. Um, this is called uh, it's called a slow demise. Place left to add in the hills of your mind. 
Out of puzzle design Shut the lights To your eyes It's a slow demise At least to try To feel something To feel something Could you feel something? Tell me, did you feel, did you feel something? Could you feel? Did you feel something? Could you feel something? When I put those pictures on your screen, did you feel? Did you feel something? I, I just was amazed by kind of this this landscape breadth covered by the album Wasteland, right? So it it starts with Mr. Sunshine with that story that you you shared about your cousin, and then and then just the depth of that song. But then you move through so many other kinds of sort of blues, rock, funk feelings in the album, but yet there's this large you know, operatic journey from start to finish. And I, I'm just wondering, what was in your head as you're constructing the complete soundscape for this album? Um, I think the key was just really to um, to let out what was what needed to get out, you know. Uh, there was not really an overarching um, uh, method at all, really. It was just like what feels right in the moment. And there was a lot of, hey, I really like that, or that doesn't work at all, you know. Um, and and I wasn't worried about being poppy or radio play or anything that, I'm not saying other people worry about that, you know. It's just like that's not on my radar. I'm just interested in making every song a complete song. Um, and really, whether I'm a funk or soul or uh, a rock artist or indie rock or whatever it is um by the way i'm officially indie rock space funk <laughs> it's kind of like where i'm going with that um the record label that i just uh superficially made up is uh star star tinge space dirt <laughs> so so we could we could call it star tinge space funk I throw a lot of things at the wall, and sometimes some things stick. Uh, I, I actually, I 
have a song that I'll probably add to a, a record in the future that I cut completely from this one. I, I did this with uh, some of my friends and hired some of uh, my favorite musicians in New York for other parts of it. I just really let it, let what comes out come out. You know, uh, I wrote some of it. For instance, Wasteland I've had for probably years and years, uh, almost 10 years probably at this point. Um, but some of it I, I wrote very quickly, you know, um, when I knew I was doing the record. And um, you ask, why is this my first record? I think this is my first record, not because I haven't had the songs, but just because I forced myself over a period of time to do this. And I knew that it's something that I had to do. And um, it took a while, uh, but now it's out and I can focus on the next one and figure out like, okay, physically, how do I make this sound the way that I want it to? How can I, how can I put this together? What songs do I want to use um, on this record? And I'm just going to throw things at the wall and uh, what sticks is going to stick. And I think it's great if people want to interpret it a certain way. If you have an interpretation that maybe isn't my interpretation, it's still a valid interpretation. And if, and if it means that to you, then that's what it means. You know, um, we could go into like what each song means and the experiences leading up to it. Um, uh, uh, as far as as far as wasteland, um, wasteland represents an addiction cycle. You know, and that's not just with drugs or with alcohol, but it could be anything. It could be food. Could be uh, uh, sex. Could be uh, whatever anybody is struggling with. That's what the wasteland is. Um, I wrote it when I was thinking about a friend who I thought did have a drug problem. Turns out they didn't. Um, but uh, uh, it, it just became kind of more than that experience. of It was more about that emotion of thinking I was losing a friend to this cycle, you know. Uh, and, and it helps me remind myself to, to check myself, you know, when I need to be checked. So, What is it that you feel with, as you said, this this album having encapsulated something that you wanted, you needed to get out, you forced yourself to get out, and, and here it is. So what do you want to grow into next in terms of the creative side of this endeavor, but also the business side? You, you know, you need to make this sustainable in a way so that you can keep doing what you love. So what are those two tracks moving forward? Well, I've been very blessed um, and fortunate to, uh, to be able to make uh, you know, a small living everywhere I've been. I, I, I uh, existed in New York. Um, I was up in Maine for about a year. Uh, it's really, I've been really, really fortunate in Omaha. Um, I have a slew of uh, gigs that I do every week. Um, a lot of different things that come up here and there. Um, I have big shows that I plan. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to, to support some incredible acts as well. Uh, as far as as far as making a living, I'm doing I'm I'm doing okay. You know, I'm 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 fine uh, from that aspect. Uh, I'm really excited. Uh, I have my first tour coming up uh, to support this record. We have shows in Des Moines, Minneapolis, uh, New York, uh, and and Portland, Maine. Uh, possibly adding a Boston date. Possibly adding a Cleveland date. And um, uh, I'm I'm excited to plan the next one and just get more more happening with that circuit and um, Omaha is a beautiful place geographically uh, because you get to really you you can go a lot of places and then come home you know it's not like being out east where you have to really 
really go a long ways and then route your way back, you know, and that's that kind of stuff. So I see good things happening and, uh, I'm just with the next record or, or or slew of singles or whatever I decide to do is is just going to be the same approach. Like, who is it that I want to work with, and um, how do I make this the best version of what I have in that moment? Um, and you know, that's that's really that's really all I'm about. I just I just love the process. It sounds like in many ways it's it's the touring which is the very much a creative outlet for you, but also um, an intrinsic part of the, the business of, of doing this. Well, sure, yeah. You want to you want to be able to tour. Um, you you want everybody wants to have an audience. It also helps when we have amazing venues. You know, uh, in town we've got some amazing venues. There's the Jewel. There's the Slowdown. There's the Waiting Room. There's there's um, there's all sorts of great places to play, uh, and and you can make those connections in that other in those other cities. You know, that's the whole game, you know, until you are selling enough tickets to bring a booking agent in. But that's I'm not even thinking about that. I just I just keep working. You know, that's that's the whole thing. That's why they call it the grind. Right. I'd love if we could like have another song to yeah. play out or to, to to weave in. Absolutely. So does that work? Is that yeah. Work? Yeah. Let's go. Um, so I'll play. Uh, I'll play the title track. Why not?
I've been in conversation with Andrew Bailey. Andrew, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Stuart. Really appreciate you, man. Sidebar, just edit that to make me sound cool. (laughs) 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 Or leave the whole thing in. F*** it. the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>